Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome to the IAB UK Connected podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler, here with a tweaked podcast format focusing on how the digital advertising industry is responding to all of the challenges coronavirus brings. The podcast is just one part of a much wider effort from the IAB to help our members right now. We have everything from free weekly webinars to bite-sized training modules, the latest consumer insight from our industry groups, and a showcase of the very best initiatives from right across the industry. You can find it all at iabuk.com forward slash connected. Now, I was incredibly excited about interviewing today's guest. He has been for more than a decade and remains so today, one of the industry's leading lights when it comes to advertising effectiveness. I'm, of course, talking about Peter Field, whose latest post titled The Long, Short and Dark makes the compelling case for continued brand marketing investment during the likely recession we face. Peter, of course, didn't disappoint. It's a fascinating half an hour or so that gets into how this recession is different from 2008, but that lots of the lessons remain the same. We cover direct-to-consumer, SMEs, we talk creative. Basically, it's a bumper episode with so much good stuff in it. I started, though, by asking Peter how the long, short and dark came about. First of all, the title was a kind of interesting one because... um, my clients at LinkedIn who actually asked me, I mean, as always, I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, we're going to have to start writing about um, recessions soon, aren't we? Because I did this, you know, 12 years ago and I was just beginning to kind of grit my teeth and stuff. When, when LinkedIn came to me and said, look, Peter, we want something, we want something really fast and we want you to talk a bit about B2B as well. So um, it, it came around in a hurry and um, it was their suggestion that the title, and I think it's a very sensible title because the more you think about it, the more you think that the more you realise that best practice in recession is absolutely rooted in long and short term effects. That's really why we observe the patterns of best practice, particularly in recession, that we do. Um, and they said, "Well, can you work long and the short it somehow into the title?" So I sat down for five minutes and thought, "Well, long, short, and dark. You know, that's Brilliant. the way long, short, or dark." So um, it was very much led by them, and you know, they the whole. The whole piece that I wrote was very much their initiative. They were the ones that first, you know, as it were, got off, yeah. got up off the backsides and said, look, we've got to have something, we need something fast. So it was, it was done, you know, very, very quickly because there was a huge and sudden hunger. And I think we were all, I mean, it is the nature of this, this pandemic-driven yeah. downturn that it came up on us really quickly. Um, and has bitten really, really sharp and fast, and um, much more so than, than previous uh, recessions we've had in recent years. So suddenly, you know, they, we, there was a scramble to do it, and that's the truth of it. Um, you said that, um, well, you think this recession will be different, but there's still lots of stuff that we can learn from, from 2008. Um, there's been all sorts of commentary on it. I mean, uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, I think, came out at the start of April saying that Q2 was a bloodbath, was the headline. Q3 might improve, but he felt like everything would bounce back in Q4. Campaign today is saying that it's a bit of a, a, a dimmer outlook and actually it won't start to recover till, till 2021. Um, we, we haven't got you on here to make predictions, of course, but um, why, why do you think this recession will be different to what we experienced in 2008? Well, I mean, what we already know about it is that, you know, it's very steep. It's these classic, it's, you know, we have to hope the upside of it, but there's already some evidence that it's going to do this. So mm. it, unlike a normal recession where, you know, yes, there may be a relatively sharp decline, but it's not, it's not precipitous like we've seen so far. 
Um, because when you go into lockdown, you know, you are physically preventing people from buying. It's not just yeah. a growing realization that maybe we should defer purchasing mm. or a gradual growing concern about our jobs or whatever, which is the characteristics of a normal recession. You know, I've described this one as a recession on steroids, and I think that kind of is its nature. Mm. So very, very short, sharp, very steep entry, and probably a very, very steep exit as well. And if you look at what's going on, you know, to a limited degree around the world, the first response in New Zealand earlier this week as they went from, from, you know, level four to level three was queues outside coffee shops and McDonald's. And this is what you're seeing, huge pent-up demand. In Denmark, queues outside hair salons. So there is all of these, all of these product categories, and it's not just services there will be, you know, durables and so on and so forth, cars at some point where people have felt inhibited or physically prevented from buying them. And that demand hasn't gone away yet. And as long as people's jobs haven't permanently been lost, a lot of people have been furloughed on government, you know, government money, essentially. Mm. I mean, that demand, I think, is going to bounce back very, very aggressively when it comes. So, you know, that's why we're different. Um, It's V-shaped. It's going to get very bloody for a quarter or perhaps two. We know that. The numbers do look bad. But, you you know, I think people just have to remember that the upside should be equally steep. Um, And it's the businesses that can preserve their capabilities, preserve their people, mm. and preserve their brands for that upside that are the ones that um, will do best. And that's not different from any other downturn. I mean, that has always been the case. It's just, I think it's going to be more extreme here because, you know, the decline will be more rapid and the upswing will be more rapid. So yeah. I think if you think about all of the well-documented learnings, and it's not just um, from work that people like me have done, but academics who've yeah. studied you know, a lot of us are now quoting, Mark Ritson's been quoting, I've been mm-hmm. quoting from this fantastic paper that was written in 2009, TELUS and TELUS, which is an amazing study of uh, recessions going back many, many years. And um, there are some really, really strong common features about how to trade your way through a recession, if you can. Obviously, this one's steeper and deeper. It's you know, for, If you're in um, travel, your yeah. stuff, I mean, I think nobody's... Nobody's seriously suggesting that airlines can afford mm. to carry on advertising and on, um, because they're in survival mode. They're asking governments for you know, enormous amounts of bailout yeah. money. And I think in that, in that context, it's, um, it's not really reasonable to expect them. And they're all doing it. So arguably, the net impact of an entire industry going dark wouldn't so much be loss of market share, but it might be some of the other undesirable characteristics of categories that go dark, which is increased price sensitivity and yeah. so on and so forth, um, and perhaps some some impacts on overall demand. But um, but you know, um, if you're in, all you and all your competitors are in the same boat, then um, arguably there is slightly less damage to be done yeah and and i guess retail is the other one because that that again may be different to a, a 2008 that the shutting of stores is enforced whereas it's not just slowed down because people don't have the the money to spend um and maybe slightly less impacted than uh than airlines we're already starting to see I think KFC, McDonald's, Pret are talking about opening stores in a in a gradual way. I mean, that's classic, isn't it, for those um, those sorts of businesses to to stay on to to mm. not come off because potentially, as you've talked about with this V shifting, the bounce back could be mm. could be a bit mm. sooner. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, retail is, is Paddy, it all depends which area of retail you're in. I mean, if you're in food and personal care, you're, mm. doing, you're doing very good business, have been. I mean, it's beginning to level off now because people have stocked up so much. But, um, and there may be a, you know, there, there may be a, a, a bit of an overhang to deal with later yeah. on on that. But, um, but it's the non-essential elective purchases, you know, clothing that, um, uh, and non-essential sort of durables, I guess, that have been badly hit in the retail sector. But I'm sure they will come back the moment they're able to open. Uh, and with a gradual phased opening, hopefully um, they'll be able to ramp up and people will learn. We're clearly going to have to live with caution for some months to come, even as the breaks yeah. go off. You know, nobody's going to be muscling it, fighting over, you know, sale goods. We're all going to have to keep our distance and be yeah. somewhat better behaved in, in retail environments for months to come. But I mean, I think we've had a pretty good training in that so far. Yeah. So hopefully, we'll be, the, hopefully we'll be able to cope. The stockpiling point is, is an interesting one because it's sort of human nature. As soon as we, uh, as soon as we find out that there's a pandemic and possibly we're going to be at home, we all went out and, bought toilet rolls and rice and good knows uh, goodness knows what else it, it, in a sense for marketers there is that very human nature of when something bad happens i'm gonna sh- I'm, I'm just gonna shut down i'm not gonna do anything and and that's what i guess you come up against and what you what, what you're talking about here yeah i mean the really interesting thing is initially we all thought it was panic buyers but the retail monitors have that's not the case and there are a very small number of panic buyers and they don't really come it's the fact that we were all buying a little bit more yeah um lots of us and of course that in part is driven by the fact that we weren't able to eat out you had to buy more food because you had to make more meals so Mm. in a sense we should have predicted this or we could have predicted it um but obviously doing something about that is difficult i mean retailers have been very it's been very difficult for them to ramp up i think we have learned the real limitations of of delivery networks and our ability. I mean, in theory, we all thought in the early days, well, I'll just buy online. Sainsbury's online or Tesco. But we very soon found that these are not easily scalable operations. And we just cannot, we're not equipped and we cannot in the short term be equipped to service 100% of this nation's food needs through through online delivery. It just can't handle it. Um, you, you get to this point where, um, you know, the, maybe the, the rise of procurement and a, a, a sharper focus on things like agency fees in our world, it's, you know, the, the programmatic chain, every single bit is now getting interrogated. When um, global pandemics happen um, and a leadership team sit around a boardroom, there's a CFO there whose job is to look at cost cutting. And there's a CMO probably sat there who um, is looking at your paper and thinking, well, we need to maintain what we're spending in brand. How do you how do you sort of resolve that conflict? Because uh, ultimately, it feels like, you know, if we've got to save money or, you know, we might have to furlough people, we might have to make people redundant. How does the CMO? Well, look, there's there's, there's two. I mean, there's two bits of guidance, which, you know, I'm quoting from others um, on this. Um, But there are two clear bits of guidance, I think, that if I was a CMO trying to persuade a CFO, mm. I would be I would be saying. And the first of these is that it is absolutely essential and important that businesses look for operational efficiencies in a downturn, that you go right through everything that you're spending um, and look for ways of improving the efficiency of that. And of course, that will include marketing. But the guidance is that the the operational efficiencies should really um, 
not result in marketing budget cuts or at least minimum marketing budget because it's yeah. that is the that is the expenditure you should do your utmost to preserve um because it's so important to the recovery phase mm. um so whilst it's very sensible obviously to go through everything you're doing in, in terms of marketing and advertising and look and see whether at this particular moment is that the right thing to be doing and could we do it better um, and the advice certainly from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is to go take a hard look at all of your advertising and just run with the stuff that works best. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes great sense in the downturn. It's not necessarily about pulling money out of it. It's just about making sure it works. It's put behind the stuff that works best. But that raises another huge can yeah. of worms is what do we mean by best? Yes. Yeah. And if by best we mean short-term ROI, then I'm sorry I don't roll with that at all. Yeah. That's a big, big mistake. You know, what we really want is that mix of activity that achieves that best balance between driving sales now and driving recovery. Because, you know, the real argument, you know, the central argument about why businesses should be looking to save money in other parts of their um, operations in order to keep funding marketing investment is really, really simple and really straightforward and very, very powerful. And that is that if you are able to invest money in marketing now, you can buy growth, you can buy exposure to consumers fantastically cheaper than you will be able to in recovery. Are just never going to get close to it. And the evidence is now very strong, mm. not just from the TELUS and TELUS paper, but from looking at the IPA data, that the amount of growth you get when you increase your marketing advertising budget, or just hold them, frankly, because, of course, yeah. in a downturn, you can buy you know, greater exposure with the same amount of money, um, and particularly because your competitors are pulling out, and because generally media rates soften as well. So yeah. you get all this extra exposure without having to put another bean in, into expenditure. So it's hugely sensible to do that. Um, um, but, but particularly if you're getting this balance right between brand and activation, long-term and short-term, what you're doing is making sure that when it comes to the upturn, that you, your brand is percolating higher in people's minds and you are the brand that they are going to tend to reach for first so you know the evidence is really strong that yeah. brands that do that find the ability to do that come out of recession massively stronger than those that cut and run and indeed those that cut and run often come out in a very weakened situation it may take them many years to recover from it so you know there's a carrot and a stick argument here that yeah. i think cfos really need to understand um, and that is you know the principle of why you really should save money elsewhere and, and not, not look for marketing as the first port of call for cuts, which of course is the opposite of what normally happens. It, totally. And I wonder if there's a strange paradox in that by, by cutting uh, right now, when you come into recovery, arguably you're going to end up piling more in to try and almost sort of claw back what you might have. You might, so there could be a weird paradox there. Uh, um, that's, that's exactly the problem. You know, you, hmm. you, if you try and make good in the recovery phase, A, your costs are higher because you're competing with everybody else and yeah. spending. But also you're trying to do that on a diminished profit base. So it starts to get really bloody. And, and lots of brands just never, never recover fully from that. And yeah. that's the problem. Um, it's often big global brands. I think about Nike and Coke and Unilever, you know, big household global brands that are often lauded for this and, and do it very well. And the reason why we recognize them is because they've been doing this exceptionally well for years. Are there other brands that maybe don't get all the, um, the headlines and applaud it's that you seen that just do a brilliant job of this and, you know, despite uh, not necessarily a recession, but despite bad times, I mean, lots of, lots of people are talking about people like Peloton, for example, at the moment, who 
had a bit of a turkey with their ad in terms of what they were doing, but given the circumstances, they're doing exceptionally well. But brands that have consistently um, invested in building brand who who now um, will co- kind of be okay and hang on be- because they've sort of put that in the bank, as it were. Yeah, it's kind of difficult because you know it's, it's always dangerous, of course, to think about putting it in the in the bank. And you know, and I mm. think those those businesses, particularly, I guess, in the really shuttered industries like um, like travel, I think those brands that did invest properly behind them, I think, will have good cause to sit back and think, "Thank God we did," yeah. because um, at least they have some momentum, something they can feed off. Mm. But you know, we expect recessions typically to last four or five quarters. Um, and, you know, you have to be an extremely strong and well-invested brand five quarters down the road not to see mm-hmm. some signs of, of, of decline. You know, and that is, that is typically, you know, year, year down the road is where you start to see the tail off beginning. Uh, so um, uh, I don't think anyone can sit there and perhaps mm-hmm. say, well, you know, thank God we've got it in the bank and it's going to see us through. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but clearly, you know, if you, if you, if you, done a lot of brand building in the past that's that's pretty helpful i mean i suppose the businesses that i admire most are the ones that keep a cool head and know that this is a good time and procter and gamble have obviously been very yeah. uh, good in um uh, in stating publicly that they and they did this last time around you know they see recession as an opportunity and mm. i think that's very smart thinking weirdly interestingly i've seen some data from the australian marketplace recently that suggested it's actually financial services that are the most resilient in terms of expenditure i haven't been through the bellwether Mm. report in the uk yet to know whether that's true in the uk you could argue that to some degree financial services are relatively insulated in this downturn they weren't in the last one of course but in this term there's every reason to but i mean that marks a real i think um, very healthy about turn for financial services i criticized them a few years back for being the sector that had most moved away from brand building, particularly driven by the damage that was mm-hmm. done to them really during the global financial crisis. But it seems if that data is correct and broad, but broad based, that maybe they've learned that lesson and are continuing to invest in this town. And I certainly, in this downturn, I certainly admire um, the strategic thinking of um, uh, brands like Nationwide, who have said, "Look, actually, what we've got here, we've got an opportunity to mm. adapt our existing campaign. So it's going to, we're going to keep it strategic, but we're going to do something that is, you know, pandemic-related. We're going to do some special ads, but they're not going to be the dull, cliched, we're all in yes. this together stuff that we yeah. are totally now inundated with. Yeah. This was a great way of saying that we're, we're going to do the acknowledgement. Budweiser as well, you know, yeah, with, you know, with make of what's mm. up. This is this is this I think is good thinking. And you know, I'm sure not everyone will have got it bang on right, but this is this is the way to do it, to do it strategically within the framework of your existing memory structures, to use the language of Ehrenberg Bass, mm-hmm. you know, to make it work with your um, you know, the assets that you have, memorable assets that you have. Well, we should stay on creative because you talk a little bit about um not seeing the effects of ad alienation as well at the moment in, in a sense that um, it, it isn't uh, isn't needed that you have to just stop everything you were doing before switch to a COVID message of which we've there's that brilliant mm. YouTube video which has cut about twelve together and they've all got the same twinkly piano and we're all in it together same um, copy even I mean it's it's, yes. it's just it's it's kind of pathetic really isn't it but but the evidence no, I mean, isn't there has, yet but yeah 
there has been a panic clearly mm. and um but you know the, the research just doesn't support this idea that we have to pull all our advertising because somehow it's inappropriate i don't even think the research supports the idea that if our ads show people meeting i mean people are not stupid they understand yeah. this was an ad that was yeah. running six months ago yeah. when the sun was shining and okay it may be raining now but you see the ads <laughs> in the valley yeah um you know and what we do know and i'm very led of course by the, the live research that system one have been doing and others i think too into uh, consumers' response to advertising. But what I love about the System 1 research is that they are comparing the research scores, the response scores that ads got three, four, five months ago before lockdown started with what they're getting now. So they can right. examine, first of all, how, whether there is any broad turning away from these ads. Answer, no. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they can understand which of the ads that seem to be doing better and which of the ads that seem to be doing not quite so well as they did before. And the answer there is, again, it's the ads that are about humanity and community mm. and the coming together. The, the, the expression that um, Orlando Wood at System One uses is the betweenness of people. And I think those are the ads that are the ones that are striking a chord with people because, you know, the nature of this recession, this, this pandemic recession is, you know, we're all sticking together. It's, ad, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's community spirit in adversity, really. So ads that reflect that, I think, strike a stronger chord. And it's the ones that are about, you know, selfish, me, me, me kinds of uh, strategies about performance and kind of kicking the other guy in the teeth kind of yeah. stuff that somehow seem inappropriate yeah. or less appropriate. But, you know, I suspect it's only the most extreme examples of that that you might sensibly even want to pull for the most part. You know, there is a reassurance in consistency in advertising. And I yeah, think yeah. if every advertiser pulled every, every pound, every dollar, every euro behind their existing advertising and just ran pandemic, COVID-19, yeah. panic messages, mm. you know, it, it wouldn't do the mood of, mood of nations any good. I think it just makes, um, makes everyone even more anxious. So yeah. um, there's, there's, a, there's a reassurance in continuity. Um, <clears throat> thinking back to 2008, d digital advertising at that point was um, well, a very different beast to what it is now, <laughs> somewhat diminished. Um, uh, and it's probably digital that gets the rap for, you know, when uh, uh, if we take money, stop investing in brand and we just go to some short term metrics, which might be those sort of vanity type things that digital is good at giving you, you know, digital is often been guilty of the, the place where marketers can go and pour some short term money in. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on on what digital can do, what marketers can do to think about how you well, think more about digital as a as a brand building tool, not just a sure. direct response bottom of the funnel thing. Yeah, I mean, the 08 experience in a sense was, I mean, it was obviously good timing, good luck for um, uh, big data. I mean, this was mm. the early days of big data. And, you know, the message was heard loud and clear by businesses, particularly, I suspect, by CFOs, that somehow in a recession, you can't afford to do that brand building stuff. That's, you know, that's just a luxury. Focus on the now, focus on short term results. And of course, it struck a huge chord. Um, and to some extent, there was some sense in that in those days. Um, budgets were split probably slightly strongly brand to activation and, and the data suggests that during the last downturn there was some sense arguably in a slight shift towards performance marketing so you know there was a bit of sense in it then but of course it, it started a trend that's gone way way too far now in my opinion mm. you know, my, what my data suggests is we're putting far too much into performance marketing we've moved too far away from brand so we go into this recession I think 
you know, generally speaking with weakened brands that have been putting too much into short term, not enough into the long term. Um, but I think because the case now for putting money in this particular downturn into short term is so weak because, you know, you've got two kinds of businesses by and large, either those that can't meet demand because, because supply chains are restricted yeah. or there is no demand because, you know, you can't physically go and buy them either mm. which way. There's not a whole lot of sense in ramping up short-term activation. I'm not saying we should move away from performance. Of course not. But um, you know, there's no sense in ramping it up in this recession. Actually, if there is any case, it's in putting it into brand. And, um, you know, and I think it's slightly unfortunate that big data and, and uh, all the, all the uh, brands, media brands that have built businesses off the back of that have become so focused on performance marketing in the last 10 mm. years. They've ignored the potential to contribute to the brand building side of the equation. And I know that's beginning to change. More and more people are addressing this issue of, you know, can we build brands through digital media? And the answer of course is yes, but it's a whole lot more difficult. Yeah. It's nowhere near as easy as everyone thought. And I particularly would suggest that anyone who thinks you can build brands with three seconds or even seven second kinds of, uh, you know, ads, kind of deluding themselves mm. you know we know what builds brands really powerfully it's emotional it's, it's storytelling it's 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 bringing people uh in into your brand in, in through an emotional association and attachments and those are very difficult to do in short order so you know the critical issue which i dearly wish that more people in in digital would seriously address is about viewability it's about how long people view your 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 ads how much of it they have on screen and whether they have the sound on and if you know if you're watching the first three seconds of a digital ad half of which is off screen and you got the sound off how are you going to build a brand in that situation? Until you know, we seriously address this and we say, look, you know, we need to, we need, we need, we need a much more powerful model for digital brand building. You know, everything that we learned from TV, of course, applies, but it's even more important in digital. Hmm. With TV, if you slightly lose someone's interest, they may well still carry on watching your ad, at least with perhaps diminished attention. It's got to be a really bad ad before they get up and leave the room. But of course, yeah. there are plenty of those around and that does happen, of course. But when it comes to digital, the cost of ignoring your ad is so little. I mean, you don't even have to get up and make a cup of tea. Mm. You just, you know, move the cursor yeah. or whatever. It's very, very easy. So that's the challenge. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's been observed by others that with digital ads, you know, unless your advertising is really good and really engaging, you might as well not even bother. Yeah. I think, although that's to some extent an exaggeration, of course, because there is a reminder role. You know, one of the great things about digital as a brand building tool is it's, it works very powerfully with established media and the two can work powerfully yeah. together. Um, so it's a bit of an exaggeration. Actually, it can work as a reminder medium. But, um, but, you know, it is significantly true that you have to work harder yeah. to, um, you know, to make it memorable. Yeah. And sorry to kind of go on, but I just remember one of the reasons I got so excited by the prospect of digital in its early days was, 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 was a, a wonderful case study that was around about 10 years ago, I guess now. I don't know, you may remember. It's for a brand called Blendtec. Um, and in the early days of online video, of YouTube videos, these guys, they're a blender manufacturer. They, they do coffee and food blenders. You know, you'll see them in Starbucks and places like that as coffee brands. So this was basically a, you know, 
a blender manufacturer that was focused on B2B to some degree and, you know, parental kitchens. But they decided that they were going to do a stream of online videos, which was a challenge to people to blend things you would never blend. So the ultimate of this was people <laughs> blending um, an iPhone, one of the early iPhones, and they showed you could physically, but so it was a great product yeah. demo. Yeah. But, you know, but it was a competition. So it was, it had all of those early excitement about user generated mm. content or inviting people in, in any ways to challenge it. And it was all played out in a wonderfully you know, kind of hammy way with a guy in a white suit, or a white coat and all yeah. the rest of it. And it was very engaging. It got a huge sharing. People would watch these videos, which were, I know, a couple of minutes long. I couldn't tell you exactly how long. Now, people watched them through. They shared them. They passed them on. It was brand building for yeah. the digital era. Yeah. But it got forgotten. We all mm. moved on to these fancy pants, clever, you know, let's serve a timely and relevant message to people within the first three seconds. We've got hijacked by this insanity of relevance. So that is tail wagging dog. Mm. What really matters is that we entertain, engage people. If you want to build brands, that's what we've got to do. Yeah. So go back to blend tech. Think about, you know, think about what people were doing back then. Um, because they hadn't then forgotten the importance of you know, engaging and entertaining people. We've, <clears throat> we've focused um, a little bit in this series uh, of the podcast and last year as well on direct to consumer brands, partly because they're born digital, I guess. And, uh, and certainly in early stages of growth, they don't, they don't follow the same rules as more established brands have done, which is, you know, typically if you want to build a brand 20 years ago, you'd have done it differently to if you're a business starting up today. Um, and the, the, the two we've spoken to, Gusto and a company called Don't Buy Her Flowers, both of which are online businesses who are um, sort of bucking the trend at the moment. I mean, G Gusto have stopped taking new customers because they can't fulfill them. So they just look after the ones they've got. Mm -hmm. um, don't Buy Her Flowers were saying we've actually turned everything off advertising wise because we, we don't need the demand. And then they're in this very strange place in, in, in terms of they're, they're just kind of um, uh, keeping up with what, what they have already. Is, is there anything, uh, just generally, I think, with, with D2Cs, do you feel that they, um, whilst in their, their early stages of growth, you can rely on, on digital and, and, and search and social to build a, build a brand within there? Do you think you get to a level, Monzo's a great example, who built a brand, you know, a million customers in, uh, in community, but to go to the next level, you then do need you know, you need a, a yeah. mix of media. You are going to have to go above the line at some point. I'd just love, love to get your take on. Yeah, no, we, we know this. I mean, um, in um, effectiveness in context, Les and I, uh, Les Ness and I looked at this in some detail. And it's quite clear that in the early days, particularly if you've got an exciting new business model, mm. as many of these do, that you can grow, frankly, with, with you know, very little conventional advertising. Yes, you obviously want to support the word of mouth and kind of networks that will drive trial. And there's great sense in doing that. And you can certainly build some quite decent, well-scaled businesses without without going to what one might regard as, you know, kind of costly conventional advertising. But, you know, you will hit a roadblock. And this is the problem. You know, mm -hmm. you hit a roadblock partly because competition starts coming in, but also partly because you need to drive it to that next level of uptake. You want to maximize your prospects for long-term growth. And also other issues start to arise, brand issues to do with price sensitivity and so on and so forth, which you can only really address with, with, with brand building advertising. So I think the mistake that we identify is a lot of businesses don't see the inflection point. Um, they don't see the point right. at which their early growth model starts to run out of steam. 
and when they need to start putting some money into the next phase, which is going to be about broad reach, probably brand-driven, brand-building advertising. Um, uh, and if you miss that inflection point, you know, you may find that other smarter competitors are coming up on more yeah. steel share from you that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to, or, or you, you, may, you, know, you may just find you never get as big as you could have been. So it's, it's, the, it's a dangerous point to miss, um, mm. but it's quite clear that that, that that is something you have to do. And I've worked with a number of businesses, digital businesses that started out that way, and they kind of seek the advice of people like me when they get to that inflection yeah. and they suddenly see yeah. their original growth model is driving, drying up. It's getting much more expensive for them mm. yeah, to yeah. drive growth through pure digital performance marketing means. And often they suddenly find that that's just not delivering workable RRIs for them. They have, to, they have to find the other model, which is the brand model. And once you do that, of course, it re-energizes your existing you know, performance marketing anyway, but it takes you to the next level. And that's, that's quite clear now. The, the guidance you give, the, the rules, if you like, in long, short and the dark, uh, can they be applied to smaller local businesses, SMEs, or is it really for, you know, big global brands? Well, I mean, it is primarily a model that is about global brands. I mean, clearly there is a, you know, there is a, there is a, a spectrum between these two. For very small, mm. hyper-local businesses, I think, um, you know, it, it, it it doesn't really apply. Brand, brand building in that sense is yeah. a different kind of thing. I mean, the thing is, is when you get into the sort of medium-sized businesses, you will probably sit there and say, yes, but we just can't afford this kind of mm. brand building. And I have some, in- some sympathy with that, but I think it's a very interesting area because you do come across interesting case studies where businesses have just said, well, we're not going to accept that we can't afford it. We're going to find a way to achieve this kind of brand impact with the resources we have. And, you know, we'll look for, we'll look to build those resources as we can, mm. because we know this is a vital, uh, um, a vital requirement to take the business to the next level of growth. So there comes a point for any SME where you kind of have to think, well, are you serious about growth or are you happy where you are? You know, if you're yeah. happy where you are, fine, you probably don't need to do this. But if you really want to build that business, you're going to have to find this transitional model where you find perhaps lower cost ways to do brand. Maybe you're using social to do it, but doing it in an intelligent way. Um, but you're, you know, you're, you're just looking. PR will undoubtedly be important to you. Yeah. For any opportunities to just get this, um, get this message out there and taking advantage of strange opportunities like uh, this pandemic. I mean, Zoom, the one, the platform we're using yeah. right now from 10 to 300 million <clears throat> users in the space of a couple of months. Now, you know, the words gift horse kind of spring to mind here. And, you know, you just don't want to look these gift horses in the mouth, take yeah. advantage of them. And if, um, if you find one, then you pile in with whatever you can to build the yeah. brand off the back of it. Um, what, what, what's the one piece of advice you'd leave uh, people who are listening to this podcast um, in terms of what they can take from either um, the, the work that you've done in 2008 or, or the update here? What's the, what, what's the sort of the easiest to swallow soundbite that you could give them that's going to make the uh, most impact right now? Well, I mean, we've, we've already talked about it. It's the fact that recessions are a fantastic time of opportunity. I mean, mm. you just have to... Resist the temptation to panic. You know, if this is your first recession, it's going to be tough. The last one was tough. There were a lot of people panicking last time around. We were told it was the end of the financial order. Banks were going to go down. They were going to take countries with them. You know, we tend to think that this is 
terrible, this pandemic, because there's disease and people are dying. And of course, these things are terrible. But the last one was terrible. The one before was terrible. They're all terrible. Well, you know, we always want to panic. You know, the people that, the people that win are the ones that keep calm, keep a level head and look for the opportunities. You know, Winston Churchill, I think, once said we should never waste a good crisis. And um, I think it's totally true. Uh, sage, sage advice, Peter. We're finishing the podcast with all our guests uh, that come on at the moment with two questions. Um, the, the first is to describe the view from where you're sitting. We've had some very interesting answers, some beautiful parks that people have looked looked out upon, um, some studio flats. Um, d- describe for us where you're sitting and what you can see. Um, well, I'm sitting in rural Oxfordshire where I've, I've escaped from London, <laughs> I have to say. Um, so I'm staring out at my garden, which is incredibly green. It's raining at the moment, so yep. it's very, very green. The grass is growing as I watch it. Beyond the garden is a, a, a little track, um, not a road, but a little track. And beyond that, a, a piece of increasingly mature forest. So there's some very tall trees up there birds flying around. Um, it's a bit gloomy, but the apple tree blossom is, is, is out. It's been, been pelted as we speak. Uh, so every now and then it looks a bit like it's snowing. But yeah, it's yeah, unbelievably green at the moment. It's just a sea of green. Um, it's just the, just the tonic. And the, the second question is uh, lockdown specific. Did you create a, or have you created a lockdown to-do list? And if you have, have you ticked anything off yet? Um, well, not, not really. I mean, we were in slightly weird times. We're, we're in the middle of selling a property. We're in the middle of selling this place. Right. And buying. We've, so we bought, we bought a place down in Cornwall, which I have to say is really where I'd love to be right yeah. now. This is, this is very nice too. Yeah. So we were in the middle of packing it up. And wow. everything's, everything's in packing boxes. You know, we were about to exchange contracts when everything kind of went past. Oh, so, so everything wow. is on hold at the moment. Um, and um, this is where we had been for several weeks before the lockdown. So we chose to stay here. And, yeah. you know, that's, um, so, uh, so there isn't really a to-do list except to kind of try and get things going again. Yeah. But this is very much business as usual. I mean, I've, I've been self-employed for 23 years now. I'm mm. used to working from home. I've regularly worked from, from this, this place anyway. Um, yeah as opposed to our sort of main home, as it were. But um, uh, so it is really pretty much business as usual for me. The whole business of shopping is a bit weird because yeah. we're not used to doing weekly shops, um, which we're trying to do now. But, um, uh, and you're not missing the travel too much? Oh, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. And the roads, of course. Um, I have yeah. to say, like a lot of people, you know, it doesn't do to say you're enjoying something because a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have died and it is a grim time out there. But actually, selfishly, in many ways, um, a lot of the things that I have to do in life have got easier. I mean, I'm not missing travel, actually. No. I'm loving the fact that, you know, I can talk to a, a conference in Canada or the US or Australia yeah. without having to get on a plane. Yes. That is really rather nice. So <laughs> I have to confess, it's a guilty confession because you know, one shouldn't be enjoying this grim time, but in some ways it's, it's actually been good for me. And I hope that, I hope that we all, if there are some good learnings mm. from these grim times, it's that you know, we probably don't need to travel as much. We yeah. can do more down a, you know, a, a, a video platform. And you know, we should all think a little bit about you know, what springboards for change we can find in these mm. times, because 
you know, so much about the way we were living our lives before was unsustainable in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll all realise that now and start to think a bit more seriously about how we might be different in the future. What a wonderful nice way thought. to end. Yes, brilliant. It's a lovely way to end. Peter, thank you so much for giving us some time. We're going to link to uh, the LinkedIn post uh, in the show notes so people can go and read it as well. But str- strongly advise everyone just to go and just consume it. It's a 10-minute read, but it's absolutely brilliant. And thank you for taking us through some of the stuff here, Peter. I really appreciate it. No, my, my pleasure. Thanks so Thank much. you. The IAB UK podcast. The inimitable Peter Field there. We could have talked for so much longer. Uh, it could easily have been an hour. Because everything he talks about is so grounded in evidence. He just talks with such authority, whether that's work he's done with the IPA, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, he talked about System 1. And his way of telling you is so straightforward and it's blatantly obvious common sense. I mean, we could have just gone on so much longer, but I love the bit where he talked about some work he and Les had done and then felt the need to say that it was Les Burnett. Well, of course, it's it's always Les and Peter. And it reminded me of when I first joined the uh, IAB and I was doing my first presentation as CMO at the IAB at Engage, which was pretty nerve wracking anyway. But I want to talk about the long and short of it and a bit about uh, emotional storytelling. I desperately didn't want to get Les's surname wrong. And in my head... I didn't know whether it was Binet or Binet. I was sort of frantically searching YouTube videos to see if someone introduces him. I was uh, texting people. I texted Alex uh, Kozlov at the IAB, who was not helpful. Um, and I loaded, and it was basically inconclusive whether it was Binet or Binet. So I think I ended up fudging it and not saying either. But uh, how ridiculous that I'd never heard, read so much about it, but never heard it say. Um, I'm w- waffling now. Um, but that's it for today. We'll be back later this week with another episode. If you want to binge on more episodes like this or look at everything else we're doing to support IAB members right now, go to iabuk.com forward slash connected or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for IABUK. Stay safe, stay home and thanks for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.